Well, thank you, Daniel, and good morning, everyone. Um, you know, Daniel's looking forward to sitting back there. I'm looking forward to standing here and having the sun on my back. That is so nice. <laughs> Take my jacket off for a change. Well, we're in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be beginning Chapter 7 this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up and put it there or click it online. We have a few Bibles over here if you don't have either of those. Um, and we'll get started in that in a minute. But in the first um, six chapters so far of Mark, we've seen some pretty interesting things. Last week, we saw Jesus walk on water and come out to that wind-battered boat uh, that his disciples were in. And we saw that he can not only um, calm the storm, but he can also calm our fears in the midst of the storm. And in six chapters so far of Mark, we've seen Jesus deal with mostly physical and material problems, like storms, like sickness, like disease, uh, death, uh, demons, and fear. But this morning, we're going to see him begin to address an even bigger problem, a more fundamental problem, which is a spiritual problem that we're all actually born with. And it is the problem of our hearts, because the heart of our problems is the problem of our hearts. Let me repeat that, because it's the key to the whole message this morning. The heart of our problems is the problem of our hearts. You see, it is absolutely essential that we understand this so that we can see why we really, really need Jesus in our lives in order to make us right with God, in order to give us a clean heart and a pure heart. You know, we talk a lot here at Calvary Chapel Palos Verdes about encouraging everyone to bring the real you to the real Jesus. Well, the problem of our hearts is part of the real us that we need to bring to the real Jesus so that he can change us and give us a new heart. Now, the context in which Jesus is going to address this problem this morning is in response to some criticism from the scribes and Pharisees. And what's going on is this. If you turn to your Bibles at the end of chapter 6, I won't read it, but in verses uh, 54 to 56, the last two verses, we see some things that tell us about Jesus' rising fame and popularity. We see there in verse 54 that people are recognizing him wherever he goes. And in verse 55, that people were literally running around the whole region to bring sick people to him to be healed. And in verse 56, that they would lay out the sick before him and that, that they would be healed just by touching the fringe of his garment. Well, as you can imagine, that made the religious leaders rather jealous because no one necessarily recognized them. At least we don't see that in the text. They weren't known wherever they went like Jesus was. And people certainly weren't running all over the place bringing sick people to them to be healed. And the truth is they probably couldn't have healed anyone who was sick anyways. And we know from other places in Scripture that the Pharisees, loved to be seen by people as they were praying or as they were fasting or as they were giving to the temple. And they loved to be seated at the places of honor, at the big public feasts and gatherings of the people. And they were, by the time of Jesus, a pretty prideful and self-righteous bunch. But they didn't always used to be that way. And it's important that we understand that, both to understand this text, but also so we don't give them the total bad rap that we tend to do was the origin and purpose of the Pharisees was actually quite good. Let me explain what I mean by that. The whole Pharisaical movement started around 500 B.C. after the return to the city, after Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the wall and rebuilt the temple. 
And the Pharisees were kind of like a back to the basics of the Bible movement, something we would encourage today, of course, in any church. And the reason they did that was they realized that as the prophets had prophesied, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the Jewish people were taken away into exile and captivity and were under God's judgment because they had turned their backs on God and turned their backs on God's word. And so the Pharisees were a group of men that rose up after they were brought back home to Jerusalem and said, hey, we don't want to have this happen again. And we know this happened to us the first time because we had turned away from God's word. Let's be people that come back to the word and let's be students of the word. So they had a very good purpose at their very beginning. But anyway, by the time of Jesus, their pride, though, had gotten the better of them. And it can with us, too. And so now they were quite jealous of Jesus. You see, the Bible says that knowledge alone puffs us up, makes us prideful. And if we're seeking after knowledge just to know stuff or to make ourselves smarter than others, even biblical knowledge, instead of what it's really there for, which is so that we can grow in our knowledge of Christ and grow in our relationship with him and to be transformed and be more like him, then we're likely to get prideful as well. And so unlike John the Baptist that we saw earlier in this series, who was able to say that he must decrease so that Jesus could increase, the Pharisees just couldn't bring themselves to see Jesus that way because their pride was in their way. They looked at Jesus literally as competition and ultimately as someone to be criticized, dragged down, and finally defeated in their view and killed. So as we begin chapter 7 in verse 1 with that background, let's read that verse and then talk a little bit about what it says, and we'll go through in in chunks this morning. So verse 1 of chapter 7 says, Now when the Pharisees, who we were just talking about, gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Let's just stop there for a minute. So we see there that the Pharisees had arrived in town. And we know from Mark 6, 53, just back a few verses, that this was the town of Gennesaret, where they had ended up after the trip across the lake. And notice there that they had some others with them, not just the Pharisees, but they're there, it says, with some of the scribes. And scribes, if you don't know it, were basically drafters of Jewish legal documents, such as marriage and divorce documents, contracts, wills, trusts, deeds, mortgages, things of that nature. And like the Pharisees, They were very knowledgeable about Jewish law and Jewish traditions. And they were essentially lawyers like Benkai and myself. Now, I've got to stop here and tell you a story about the very first Bible study I was ever asked to teach. It was probably a little over 30 years ago when someone thought I might have the gift of teaching and challenged me to teach a Bible study at a a men's group (laughs) to uh, a bunch of men one morning on the subject of how can you be a Christian and a lawyer at the same time? And uh, it was quite a challenging topic. So I, uh, this is before computers, I sat down uh, with my concordance and some other books and I I figured out that the word for lawyer or attorney is the same word used for scribe throughout the scriptures. And so then I took my concordance and I went through and found all the verses uh, speaking of scribes. Well, as you can imagine, there's not one good verse in scripture about scribes. And, and it's always, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And I was feeling pretty down. How am I going to pull this one off? And then finally, I found at the end of the book of Titus, when Paul gives his greetings, as he does at the end of a lot of his letters, he actually gives greetings to Zenos the lawyer, 
who was traveling with Apollos. So there was a, a, an attorney that was one of the early evangelists. And the point of my message ended up being that God can save even lawyers. If he can do that, he can certainly save you. So keep that in mind when you think about uh, what it means to be a scribe. Not, not, a, not a fun word to associate yourself with in the Bible, uh, as I found out. All right, well, anyways, back to our text. Um, you would think that if such an important group of people made up of these Pharisees, the religious leaders, these scribes, the attorneys, if, if such an important group of people had just arrived in town, that they would have been focused on all the healings that had been going on. After all, it was their people that were being ministered to and were being healed, the people they were responsible for, and that should have made them kind of happy and kind of thankful and glad. But instead, look at the reaction in verse 2 and at what they focus on instead of all the healings. Verse 2 says, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwatched unwashed. I mean, talk about missing the forest through the trees, right? I mean, come on, all these healings are going on, and that's what they notice, that the disciples are eating without properly washing their hands. All these miracles going on, and all they pick out is this one tiny minor detail. Now, before we laugh at them too much, how often are we like that? Someone may do an amazingly kind thing for us, for instance, like make us a meal, or take us out to lunch, or or give us a nice gift And we can end up focusing on some minor little thing we didn't like, and we fail to appreciate the really nice thing they did. And I must confess, I know I can be like that sometimes at home. Janet will have the house all cleaned up and beautiful, have a great dinner ready to serve, and I'll walk through the door after a long day at work, and what do I notice but one little thing out of order, and that can end up kind of ruining the entire evening. Well, that's kind of what the Pharisees are doing here, and we all can be guilty of it. And you see, we can just pass that kind of behavior off as being OCD or something, but that's not what it really is. It's actually being very self-focused and very prideful, just like these Pharisees, which is why we need Jesus to change our hearts, to transform our hearts. Now, the so-called laws that the disciples were breaking that we're going to read about here were not actually God's revealed law in the Old Testament, but instead it was, it was a whole body of man-made rules and regulations and religious laws that had grown up around the revealed law over the years. And yes, the Old Testament does mention a few things about hand-washing in a few places. You'll find in Exodus uh, 30.18 and also in 40.12 that the priests were told to wash their hands before performing a sacrifice. Kind of, kind of makes sense. You'd certainly think they'd want to wash after the sacrifice as well. And in Leviticus, there are some places where washing was prescribed uh, in response to unclean bodily discharges from a human being. But that's it. Those are the only references to a requirement of hand washing in God's revealed law. But you see, part of the nature of the human heart is that it likes to make rules and regulations and impose them on others. And it's even better if you can somehow wrap that all up in some form of religious piety. And that's what they're doing here, because you can then see the force of God in the whole equation, and you can really make people feel bad and really put a burden on their shoulders when they're not following those rules, if you've somehow wrapped up your man-made rules with the force of some religious issue. Colossians 2, which the Young Adults group just went through. Can we get a shout-out for Young Adults? There's a bunch of them back here. Yeah, um, 
speaks very forcefully against this and tells us not to submit to rules such as do not eat, do not drink, and do not touch. Why? Because we have died to sin in Christ, pictured in our baptism. We've been risen to new life in Christ, pictured in his resurrection. And we follow him, and he'll take us to the rules we need to obey, but we don't need to obey man-made rules and regulations. Now, if you go back to Mark 7, um, let's look in verses 3 through 5 at all the little rules that these Pharisees had managed to come up with, starting in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, of course, we know today that a lot of this might have made sense from a hygiene standpoint. After all, we live in a culture that's doing that right now because of the coronavirus. But germ theory hadn't been discovered back then. Uh, Germs weren't known about back then. And so that is not why they had all these rules. You see, they thought that all of this ritualistic washing would somehow make them clean before God, would somehow make them right before God. And it was no different than any other religious practice that still exists to this day, like like bow here, bow this way, bow this certain number of times a day, or bow at these or pray at these special times, or say this special prayer, or repeat it a certain number of times, and that somehow that'll clean you up and make you acceptable to God. So Jesus is going to step up here and defend his disciples from this attack. And what I like about that is it's a cool reminder of how Jesus will defend his followers from attack. You know, we don't really have to defend ourselves when we're doing the Lord's work. If we need defending, he'll show up and he'll do the defending, and that's what he's going to do here. And in the course of defending his disciples from this attack, he's going to show us what is so wrong with this kind of thinking. And in the next set of verses, which is 6 to 23, Jesus is going to point out three problems with this kind of thinking that the Pharisees had. And it's first that it it ends up elevating their human traditions, their man-made rules, over God's word. It elevates the human traditions and man-made rules over God's word. Secondly, that following them can actually, in some cases, cause us to disobey God's word. And thirdly, that it covers up the real problem, which is the problem of the human heart, not the simple washing of our hands. So let's look at verses 6 through 8, and we'll see the first of these problems there. This is the response now of Jesus as he's defending his disciples. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 29, 13, which was part of that prophecy of judgment upon God's people that I mentioned earlier of them turning away from God that happened about 700 years before Christ and is what resulted in their capture and their exile to Babylon as they were under God's judgment. 
And Jesus here is calling the Pharisees, these same guys that rose up after that to bring us back to the word, he's calling them hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite very simply is someone who professes one thing but actually does another. Professes one thing but actually does another. The opposite of a hypocrite is someone who is sincere. And that word sincere is really interesting. In, in, the, in the Latin, it comes from two words, sin, which means without, and sere, which means wax. So it means to be the opposite of a hypocrite is to be someone without wax. And you may wonder, what's that mean? No wax in my ears or something? No, that's not what it's talking about. Back in those days, when Roman people or Greek people would entertain in their backyard like a, a Sunday afternoon Super Bowl picnic or something of that nature, super gladiator picnics or whatever they had, they, they, would, have, they would have statues out there of, these, of all kinds of things. And if you um, were wealthy, you had these really nice statues. But the problem was sometimes those statues would get knocked over or fall or break. And if you were cheap, you would try to fix your statute by putting wax in the parts to put it back together instead of going out and buying a new one. And so what would happen is you'd have your garden party and have your friends over. The sun would come out, and you guessed it, the wax would melt, and your statute would fall apart again. So a, a, that's how this word sincere came about. It was someone who was genuine, who actually had the real statute, not just a broken one they were packing up. And so it was, it was someone who was without wax. So that's the opposite of being a hypocrite. But remember that um, the problem with these Pharisees is that they were hypercritical of others. And so you can also think of that word hypocrite as hypercrit, <laughs> hypercritical of others. And that's what they're doing here. Now remember, again, they had started out after this time of exile as a movement back to God's word. So this accusation Jesus brings to them of calling them hypocrites must have really stung and been a real slap in the face. Again, Jesus stepping up to defend his disciples. Because look at what Jesus is saying that they were being hypocritical about. It was about keeping God's commandments, which are found in his word. The very thing they had set out to do, he's saying they are now hypocritical with respect to that because of their emphasis on these traditions and man-made rules. Jesus says there in verse 8 that in all their focus on the religious traditions, they have ended up leaving God's word. You see, that is the danger, brothers and sisters. Anytime we add to God's word, we may end up actually leaving the truth of God's word. There are enough commandments in this book to keep us all busy for a lifetime, and we certainly don't need any more. And depending on how you count them in the Old Testament, there's between five or 600 commandments all in God's word. But the Pharisees, rather than focusing on just keeping those, had created thousands upon thousands of new laws on top of those. And as we saw, there were a few places in the Old Testament, yes, that spoke of washing hands, but they had made up a lot of new laws requiring hand washing for all kinds of things. And I want to give you just a sampling because it's, it's really ludicrous when you think about it. Uh, of the things they called people to wash their hands for. And this comes from two places. The Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of how you carried out all these Jewish things, was passed down over the centuries. And then the Talmud, which was more the written tradition or the written commentaries. I love digging into some of our Jewish heritage as Christians because it really makes things come alive for us. But let me give you some examples, and you may laugh. You had to wash your hands, of course, as we saw here, first of all, when you ate. But not only when you ate, but also while you were eating, 
but only if you encountered certain types of foods like fruits and vegetables. And their thinking was, well, fruits and vegetables somehow are tied more to the ground, and by eating something out of the ground, you might be touched by the salt of Sodom. I don't know why they thought that, and so therefore you needed to wash that off after you encountered fruits and vegetables in your meal. I mean, there's a great reason not to eat your broccoli, I guess. Um, and then you even had to wash your hands again after you finished eating. But it doesn't stop there. You also had to wash your hands when you first got up in the morning. You also had to wash your hands before you prayed. You had to wash them before you could come into the temple. And the priests had to wash their hands before they could serve in the temple. Whoops, Daniel, I guess we forgot to do that this morning. Something, something's wrong with us, right? We didn't do that before we came out here today. They also mandated hand washing if you were in a cemetery when you left the cemetery. They mandated hand washing I thought all the nail shops up and down the street here, whenever you got your hair cut or your nails cut, you had to have your hands washed. You had to have your hands washed if you were at a funeral service and you came within two cubits of the dead person. On top of that, they had a very detailed prescribed manner of exactly how you were to wash your hands and of exactly how much water you were supposed to use. And in these, we can really see that this had absolutely nothing to do with hygiene. Because you're only supposed to use, get this, an eggshell and a half full of water to do this, which isn't very much, and it's certainly not enough to actually clean your hands. And you had to take it first in your left hand, or sorry, in your right hand, and pour it over your left hand, and then do it with your left hand over your right hand. And you only had to get the water down to the middle digits on your finger. But if you did that, you had satisfied their rules. So can you imagine? what it would be like to put that in 21st century context, what this church would be like if we did that. You know, God's, God's word commands that we love one another and that we're gracious and, and merciful towards one another and that we're full of kindness and joy. But what would it, we become here as a church if, if instead in the morning when you came over here to the welcome table where Janet is, um, and the, Janet and the ladies asked each of you, did you wash your hands when you got up this morning? Uh, did you wash your hands before and after breakfast? And if you had any fruit at breakfast, did you wash them? And oh, by the way, you're going to need to wash them again right now before you can come into this church. And oh, and if you want to pray while you're here, you also got to wash your hands again before you pray. We won't let you pray unless you wash your hands. And then I'd have to wash my hands before I could preach. And Daniel would have to wash his hands before he could lead in communion, which he's going to do a little bit later. Where would the grace be? Where would the mercy be? Where would the love and joy be if we were that kind of church? You see, it would all be negated. It would all be taken away because of our focus on these little rules. And worse yet, how could we really do what we came here to do, which is to worship God and lift him up with joyful hearts? And the point is, we couldn't because all of our rule keeping would overshadow our doing of the more important thing of worshiping God with hearts full of joy and love. And that is what Jesus meant in verse 8 when he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Now in verses 9 to 13, Jesus is going to go on to point out to them the second problem with all these man-made rules and traditions. And it isn't just that these things were overshadowing the importance of God's word, but that they were actually getting in the way of their obedience to the real commands of God. So let's read verses 9 through 13 next. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. See, these rules went way beyond just hand washing. And here we see that in their rule keeping and their traditions, the Pharisees are actually rejecting an outright commandment of God, which is another way of saying they're disobeying the commandments of God. That's why this would have been such a slap in the face to them, these people that were all about the back to the Bible movement, and let's, let's know God's word, let's obey God's word, and yet Jesus pointing out that all these rules they've added on is causing them to actually disobey God's word. And he gives them this example of how they were doing it, and it's with respect to how they were treating their parents. The law said very clearly in the Ten Commandments, you all know this, that we are to honor our father and mother. Yet they had this religious tradition that we see here called korban, C-O-R-B-A-N, of encouraging people to dedicate certain things to God, which on its face, by itself, certainly not a bad thing. In fact, that could be a good thing. We dedicate our children to God. We dedicate our homes to God. We're, we're supposed to dedicate our lives to God. But what they were teaching and doing was that even if you had money set aside to use for the care of your parents when they got older, because that's how things were done back in that culture, that you could get out of caring for your parents, in other words, violate that commandment, if you declared that that money was something dedicated to God. Now, how goofy is that? You could use their traditions to declare something to get out of this basic obligation in the Ten Commandments to take care of your mother and father. So in the keeping of the tradition, that it would actually cause you then to violate one of God's key top 10 commandments. Now, it's important to also understand that Jesus isn't saying, and the Bible isn't saying, that traditions in and of themselves are necessarily bad. We have a tradition in our family that I thought of when I was teaching this, the last, uh, that we've followed for probably the last 30 years, of watching the movie Christmas Vacation. Every Thanksgiving evening after we finish dinner, we'll sit down and have our pumpkin pie and watch that. And we do it to get ourselves all psyched up for putting up all of our Christmas lights and decorations. Because if you don't remember in that movie, Clark Griswold, played by Chevy Chase, goes crazy putting up 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights all over the outside of his house. And we used to try to rival that. The kids would always encourage me on each year, Dad, more lights, more lights, more lights. And I think the most we ever got to was about 8,000 uh, imported Chinese lights from Costco. But... <laughs> We had a lot of good, yeah, seriously, people would come by and look at the house, and we even got letters from people thanking us for it. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I'm a little too old to do all that now, so we're down to maybe a 1,000 or so. But we used to have a lot of good family fun and memories doing that over the years. But how good would it be if in doing all of that, we forgot to give thanks to God on Thanksgiving, or we skipped church the following Sunday because we had to get all those those lights up, or worse yet, if we missed the real meaning of Christmas because we were so focused on putting up all those lights. So you see, traditions can be fine so long as we keep them in their proper place and don't allow them to overshadow more important things or allow them to cause us to disobey God's commands. But you know, there are churches out there still to this day that put religious traditions, 
or human teachings on the same level as the Word of God as far as authority goes in the church. And that is very dangerous because over time, just like with all those hand-washing rules, they will tend to overshadow the Word of God. Or just like with the Corban, they can end up leading us to actually violate the Word of God. And if not that, they can lead us to start believing things that are different or contradict what God's Word says. And then we'll start compromising the truth of God's Word to make it compatible with our humanistic traditions and rules. Just look at some of the books available from Christian booksellers. Books on marriage, parenting, or other relationships, or on anxiety, anger, greed, lust. They're filled, oftentimes, with secular psychological principles or humanistic self-help principles with a few nice, Bibles, few nice sounding Bible verses thrown in for good measure. And if it's not that, pick up books on church growth or on Christian maturity, how we grow as Christians. And you'll find they're often filled with corporate marketing or corporate leadership development techniques with a couple of Bible verses thrown in. And especially today, there's books on what's wrong with our culture filled with political solutions, not spiritual ones. That is why in this church, in Calvary Chapel, Palos Verdes, we want to look to the Word of God as our highest and final authority for all of our faith and practice. Amen? So we don't want to do that. Now, Let's look at the third problem of focusing too much on man-made rules and traditions. And it comes out of what Jesus had to say, has to say in verses 14 to 23. So let's read those. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people... His disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? I mean, pretty basic biology, right? And thus he declared all foods clean, which is interesting because Mark got his gospel from Peter. And you remember, Peter is the one that had the vision of all these foods being clean that the Gentiles were eating and literally changed the way the early church looked at that as they moved away from these um, Jewish traditions. And it's interesting then that Mark would mention that here in parentheses. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So the overarching theme of what Jesus is saying there is that our problems are not external, and so they can't be fixed by changes to our external environment or what is outside of us. You know, there's so much talk today about, in our culture and even in the church, about the coarse nature of our politics and concern about what people say on social media and that we need to regulate that. And in response, there's all these proposals for how to deal with those things. But you see, the problem, if we think of this biblically, the problem isn't our politics. And it isn't Facebook or Twitter or even political protests. The problem is the hearts that are revealed through those sorts of things. Those things are just platforms on which we can see the wickedness of our own human hearts. 
And sure, you can change the platforms and you can change the politics, but that won't change the hearts that we see displayed in those things because our problems stem from what is inside of us, and that is a sinful heart by nature. And all the evil that we see around us starts in and comes out of our hearts. And you see, the Pharisees were missing that key important point because they were so focused on the externals and like whether someone was washing their hands to make themselves clean when the cleanness God wants as we're going to see in a minute and Jesus gives us comes from the inside out you know it would be like having an internal infection of some sort that caused all kinds of rashes on your body all over your skin and you were trying to treat that internal infection by putting ointments and creams all over your skin, it's just not going to work. It's never going to go away. And you see, the Bible teaches that the cause of all of our external sin is the internal evil in our hearts and that no amount of external rule-keeping rituals or traditions is ever going to change that. But Jesus can. Just as we've seen him in six chapters, heal the sick, make the lame walk, the blind see, demons leave people, He can cure the problem of the evil human heart. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has done that for you. He has made you clean. We can't clean ourselves up, but he can. I want us to take a quick look at the diagnosis that the Bible gives of our own human hearts in their natural state. And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, but before the flood, Genesis 6-5 says this, right before God brings the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Unless you think something has changed even after the flood, which you could say was a huge washing away of all the external effects of sin, God starts over again with Noah and his family. And then we have this statement from God in the middle of Genesis 8, 21, after the flood. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And then Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what Jesus says here in Mark 7, 21 to 23 is emphasizing that same thing that's all throughout the Bible, that our hearts are just naturally wicked. And it is out of the wickedness of those hearts that all of sin flows. And think about it. That's exactly what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount as he's trying to get the people to see why they need him as a Savior. that They can't fix these problems. He talks about the sins of murder and adultery in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, and I think you all know these verses, but listen to what he's saying. Chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall, con- shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment and if you were a rule-keeping pharisee sitting there you would be thinking your chest is all puffed up i've never committed murder look at me i've externally kept that law but then jesus goes on to say verse 22 but i say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment what's he teaching there what's he talking about well you see it is anger is the heart attitude the internal heart attitude that can but thankfully doesn't always, manifest itself in the external sin of murder. 
Anger is the internal heart attitude that can but doesn't always manifest itself in the external sin of murder. And so he's saying the judgment is the same for both. He says you're liable for judgment if you murder. You're liable for that same judgment if you're angry because the murder started here. It starts in the heart. And then look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. Probably easier to understand, especially for guys. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So every Pharisee is sitting there thinking, I've never committed adultery. Look at me, I'm, I'm great. And then Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Same principle as with anger and murder. Lust is that internal heart attitude that can but doesn't always manifest itself in the external sin of adultery. So the sin starts there with that lustful heart. So you see, our sin problem is an internal problem, and no amount of external action on our part can possibly fix an internal spiritual problem. And that is why rules and rituals and traditions or even external morality like the Pharisees had will do us no good in dealing with our sin. Because by cleaning up or washing the outside, nothing will change on the inside. It's kind of like putting, like they do at open casket funerals, it's kind of like putting nice clothing and perfume on a dead corpse. It might look really nice. It might even smell nice for a while, but it's still a dead corpse. It's eventually going to stink and rot. And so we need a new heart. And that's not something we can do to ourselves or that any human means can possibly fix. I mean, you and I might have little injuries. We can certainly pull out our own splinters and we could can put band-aids on minor cuts or abrasions. But if we've got a bad heart, think about it. There's no way that we can do a heart transplant operation on ourselves, can we? It takes a team of highly skilled, highly trained surgeons to pull that off. People far superior to us in their training. And even then, well, they're just going to give us another human heart with all the problems that that comes with. But because that new heart will still be spiritually sick. But in Jesus, as the great physician, who can not only heal externally, and, but can heal internally, we have a far superior surgeon who can not only heal the external diseases, but he can also heal that internal disease of sin and give us a new heart. And that is the point that this part of Mark 7 should lead us to conclude. You see, under the new covenant, which we're going to celebrate in a few minutes in communion, that was ushered in with the death of Jesus for our sin and the resurrection to new life that he also gives us, we actually get a new heart, a clean heart, spiritually speaking. This was promised in the Old Testament in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And I want you to listen to these words out of Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And you see, a heart of stone there pictures a heart that is dead to God and dead to the things of God. But a heart of flesh pictures a heart that is alive to God and alive to the things of God. And if you're a Christian, you have that. Jesus has given you the new heart, made you alive to God in Christ. That's what we get in him, a heart that is alive to God and the things of God. And here's how that's actually explained in Ephesians 2.4. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive 
together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And as most of you should know, grace is that unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor from God. It is not a reward for good behavior. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to keep it. It's just God showering his goodness and favor and mercy on us. And that is how we are saved. That is how our hearts are clean. That is how we are made alive with God. And that grace is received only by faith. You accept it, that Christ has done this for you. David knew this truth. David prayed for this to happen to him back in Psalm 51.10, which is one of the three psalms he actually wrote after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah was revealed. You know, he committed uh, uh, adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah, and then covered it up before the whole congregation for nine months. So massive, massive sins by the king of Israel. And yet he says this in uh, in Psalm 51.10 as he's expressing his repentance. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, at salvation, Jesus doesn't just give us, doesn't just come into, rather, our old heart, as we're fond of saying in the church. Jesus, you know, I prayed to receive Jesus into my heart. He actually gives us a new heart. Um, The old preacher, J. Vernon McGee, some of you know who he is. You can still hear him on the radio airwaves, even though he's been home with the Lord for a good 30 years. He used to point out, it was kind of funny, he says, why would Jesus want to come into our old, filthy, rotten, polluted heart? He wants to give us a new heart, and then that's the heart into which he comes to dwell. So as we close, I'd like to extend this invitation on behalf of our Lord Jesus. If you're here today and you have not accepted Christ as your Savior yet, if you're tired of the heart you have, if you're truly brokenhearted in that respect, not just over things in life going wrong, but brokenhearted in that you realize you've got an evil heart, an unclean heart that needs cleaning. And it's beginning to dawn on you that the sins you commit, the things you do that you'd like to stop doing, that you don't want to do, that those are because of this internal problem in your heart. And if you're ready for a new heart, it's as simple as what David did in Psalm 51.10. Pray and ask God to give you a new heart, a clean one, just like David did. And he will. Because he died to pay for our sins, and you can have an entirely clean slate before God, all by grace, if you'll trust in Jesus by faith to save you and make you right with God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great little section of Scripture, Lord, in which we can see um, some of the silliness of our own hearts, Lord, as we make up some of those rules trying to make ourselves right with you. I pray, Lord, we would all forsake those. We would trust in your finished work on the cross, that that and that alone is what we'd be putting our faith and trust and confidence in, Lord, to make us right before you. And I pray that if there be any here this morning that want a new heart, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just pour down on them right now, cause them to say, yes, Jesus, I want that new heart. I want you to come into my new heart and to be my Lord and Savior, and I give my life to you. And it's in Jesus' magnificent name that we pray. Amen.